Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And Dominique, today we have a real treat. We're joined by Nancy Kelly, who's sitting here with me. And Nancy has been at the barn all week and she's been filming the big horses. She's been filming Panda. And I'm gonna let Nancy share with you what her project is about. Wonderful, hi Nancy. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real treat for me too. So we are filming a documentary of which the main character is operant conditioning. That wonderful technology that we use to change the behavior of of all types of animals and even people. The company is called Spybird Productions and it consists of me, uh, Carrie Carlson, who is a gifted artist, videographer, queen of designing the shots and the, the design of the film, and Bob Bailey, who is a legend in his own time as far as trainers are concerned, if you will. So we have gotten together and decided that this might be a really good way to get our message out about the technology of operant conditioning and how it can do anything from improve your animal training and your, your relationship with your animal to transform your life. So that's what we're doing. So you met Bob how long ago? When did you start with, when did you meet Bob? I met Bob in 2003 when I went to my first uh, operant conditioning workshop with him, also known as the chicken workshop. Chicken workshop, yes. And if you aren't familiar with the idea that there are chicken workshops, the first time you hear that, you always feel as though you should either giggle, laugh out loud, or say, what, there are chicken workshops? So can you describe it? First of all, I know not everyone listening is going to be that familiar with Bob Bailey and his whole place in the development of modern animal training. So can you talk a little bit about who Bob Bailey is, what his background was, about the Breelands, maybe about your other project with the with with the Breland's book because you've got some exciting irons in the fire. I do, I do, and I'm very excited about them too. Well, shall we start with Skinner? Might as well. Let's start with Skinner. So B.F. Skinner was a really cool guy who had some really big ideas and in the course of his work at Harvard he discovered operant conditioning which is as we know now, the way that animals learn in nature. You you do something and there are some consequences and those consequences shape your next choice. It seems like not even a big deal now. Right, right, but neither is gravity. I mean, we've all been attached to the planet, but it took Newton to say, oh, oh, there's this thing called gravity that keeps us attached to the planet, duh. And, And so these things that can seem so obvious once they've been pointed out are anything but until they are so so there was Skinner and and then Skinner started to develop this discovery into a technology through the the Pelican project and that was a to be brief it was a World War II project where he was having pigeons drive a missile before we had guidance systems we didn't have you know all that computer stuff that we have now. He literally trained the pigeons the same way that we train animals now by simply giving them food when they did the right thing and trained them to guide a missile toward a ship. Now that that technology was never used, the you know things developed and they did something else. But through that process Marion and Keller Breland were his students and assisted him on the project and helped in turning this discovery into a technology, meaning something that can be repeated over and over and therefore taught to other people. Here's how we apply it. So it's applied operant conditioning. The Breelands then, when that project was over, said, let's have a farm where we train all kinds of animals and show everybody how cool this technology is. 
they discovered they needed to make money to feed the animals and they began to respond to the public and what the public wanted train chickens for uh, to advertise feed in feed stores and you can see some of those i've seen i think bob has shown some of those early commercials and to our modern eye they look so primitive really but when you think about what that must have looked like when this was in the 50s when television itself was brand new so the just commercials any sort of commercial really was brand new and here were these animals performing so when you look at it through that lens it's like wow that is really cool so so they were doing these commercials and bob has shown some of those those early commercials and when you think about the training and what he was getting from these animals and how consistent it was. It's pretty astounding. Yeah, so the the longest running one, there was one that ran for, speaking of commercials, for about 20 years. And it was Buck Bunny who advertised for Coastal Federal Savings. And they had a little bank shaped, a, a, a bank to put coins in, shaped like the actual bank building. And Buck Bunny would pick up these coins and deposit them into the bank. I think he did three of them. And they would talk about, you know, if you want to save your money, put it in Coastal Federal Savings and we'll take care of it. And it was adorable. It's a bunny putting coins in a bank. But it was consistent. It was repeatable. They could train any number of bunnies to do that using the technology. And that's the joy of it. It works for every animal all the time for whatever you need to train when you use it correctly. The people that they had training down in the, the farm in, in Arkansas were literally that, farmhands, that they hired from the local area. So these were not college graduates. These were not necessarily gifted animal people who had studied a lifetime to learn animal skills. These were people from the area who they hired and trained when they were training for the commercial industry. They were training dozens and dozens and dozens of rabbits and pigeons and chickens, chickens and ducks, chickens and raccoons. Ducks. Yep. And it sounded more like they had sort of a video, more like like you were playing a video game because you you were pushing button and the automatic feeder would dispense the goodies and so on. So it's very different kind of training from the training we might think of for our pet animal. However, what it was, was definitely proof of concept. I've read somewhere about Bob Bailey that his choice of this way of training was mostly based on efficiency, the fact that it works. So some of us come at it from the angle of ethics, and of course we want it to work, but for him, and I'm not sure what the exact quote is, but it was his method of choice because he felt it was the most efficient way to train animals. Can you confirm that? Yes, he, he talks about efficiency and effectiveness. It works, it works quickly, it works consistently. You can set your standards wherever you want them to be and achieve them. And of course that requires some very steady record keeping if you're working with your pet dog at home, record keeping is going to help you because we, we humans, we like to take shortcuts and we let our other ideas get in the way and we get tired and we don't feel like doing it that day and we'll do it a little differently a different day and so forth. But when you actually apply yourself, keep the records, follow how many trials you've done and how many achieved what you wanted to achieve and how many errors you made, all you do is move on to the next one and do better. Bob went to work for the Breelands later, and that's where Bob comes into the picture. He started out as the first Navy marine mammal trainer and met the Breelands when the Navy consulted with them, and the rest is history. He went to work for them ultimately, and they all worked to develop that. Actually, Keller had died by the time Bob went to work for them, but that's a sideline. Um, yes, efficient and effective, and when you're training mass numbers of animals for commercial purposes, you have to do that. Now, there's plenty of evidence showing the inspections the Breelands had by, by various entities and just the, the records that they have of the humane treatment of their animals, too. There were all kinds of rules about if there was a performing animal, that animal had a partner, 
that after a certain amount of time, the first animal was taken out of the performance and sent off to its other home place to have a rest while the partner went in and did exactly the same thing because operant conditioning technology can help you produce consistent behavior over a series of animals. What I found interesting about the fact that efficiency was very emphasized uh, in what I read anyway about him was that sometimes people say, well, it's the most humane way and that's why I choose it even though it takes longer or it's like on, on, the, on the efficiency front, some people may feel that they're losing standards a little bit, but at least they feel that it's more ethical. But that's, I find that it's interesting that someone says, well, I'm picking this because it is the most efficient way of training animals. So it's, we're winning on both fronts here. That's right. That's exactly right. And I've heard Bob say that he'd say, I'm not really a clicker trainer. I use a marker signal, I pair it with positive reinforcement, and I use it because it's the best training method out there. But if if someone showed me something that was more effective, I would switch in a heartbeat. So his standard is training excellence. It's not the, the sentimentality that we might bring to it in terms of what goes into our choices. But he uses the same technology that we use because we love our horses, he uses it because it's the most effective. And some of the things that Bob has been able to train over the years just would make your jaw drop when he starts telling some of the stories of, of things that they're training. But Nancy, you met Bob through the chicken workshop. So I think the chicken workshops have to be described a little bit. And some of what you gained, that what, what was the transformation or what was the path that, that you got directed on as a result of the chicken workshops? Well, I'm still exploring that. And that's one of the big things that we have really opened up through filming the documentary and some of the people that we've interviewed. There's definitely a history of transformation, if you will, and I don't want to get all magical and ethereal and stuff, but but it's true. People go to the chicken workshop and it's, a, it's five days long typically, and something happens to them by being immersed in that world of changing the behavior of a very fast moving chicken that gives you a lot of behavior. And if you're not careful, you only have to click and feed a chicken one time to do some things and you're done. That's what they're going to do. And you have a very hard time changing that. And that's one of the lessons. But typically, I think I can say typically, there's a, and, and Bob will even say, what people do is they go in and they they're listening to the lecture, they're practicing the hand on, hands-on skills, but their brains are stuck in where they came from. And there's a set of skills in whether you call it clicker training or positive reinforcement or whatever you want to call it, the better you are at it, that's where you get your efficiency. I mean, I'm sorry, but an amateur can't just walk up and pick up a clicker and some food and get magical, wonderful behavior change. There are skills involved. And the more you gain those skills, the better you are. So you already have a set of skills when you go into this chicken workshop that you've used probably very successfully in the past. And it's really hard to change your behavior. So you go Monday through Wednesday, beating your head on the wall, acting like you're changing behavior, but you're not really changing your own behavior. You're insisting, you're rebelling. I'm gonna do it my way and do a little bit of what he says, but not that much. And then, you know, on Wednesday night in your hotel room, you're really frustrated. And the next day you go in and say, well, fine, I'll just try it his way. Lo and behold, your chicken does what you intended for the chicken to do because you get what you reinforce. And by Friday, you've achieved the goal of the class. You show your chicken to the class and you feel pretty good about it, although you're really tired. <laughs> so it's a, and I think, Alex, you talked about some of that to some extent that happens with your students through their horse training so it doesn't require chicken workshops but i think a sort of transformation is required as you embrace this entire lifestyle or toolbox that is operant conditioning technology uh, absolutely that we have people who throughout their life they had not had positive reinforcement modeled for them they didn't have it modeled in their families, 
They didn't have it modeled at school. They certainly haven't had it modeled in their workplace. It's not something that comes in quotes naturally to them because they haven't really had exposure to good positive reinforcement teaching strategies, but they want it. They want to be nice to their horses and they've, and often there are different reasons that have brought them to clicker training workshops. They, some, some people come, I always describe it as sort of kicking and screaming. They're being dragged by their horse because nothing else has worked. They're in love with this horse, but they have all kinds of problems and, and they've tried that you always hear, I've tried everything and nothing has worked. And and they kept hearing about clicker training. It kept sort of crossing their path. They got curious. They finally landed in a clicker training workshop, but they don't really know what they're in for. And over the course of three days, being completely immersed in a culture in which people are so supportive and you're not hearing no don't do that, that was wrong, which even just saying it feels feels very grating. So when they're completely immersed in this, let's look at what we want the horse to do. Let's create a, a teaching strategy that allows you and your horse to be successful. It can be totally life transforming. And, and there are other people who come, um, they've just, they've heard about clicker training and when they when they start seeing the work, it just feels like a homecoming. This is such a match with who they really want to be. And they may not yet have the skills to be an effective, good clicker training trainer under all circumstances because what has been modeled throughout their life is not is not positive reinforcement training. But they they recognize this this is what I want. This is my homecoming. And that's life transforming. And it takes a whole life to develop those skills and the knowledge because, you know, the first, I think the first, when you first hear that consequence drives behavior, that's the beginning, right? Yes. It's a, it's a big, how do you say in English, a revelation. It's a big notion, you know, because before you used to think, if I scream louder to the dog, sit, maybe that will help. Yes. You know, if I scream louder, he will sit. But then you discover that consequence drives behavior. And it's like, duh, of course, you know, it makes total sense. So it seems simple enough once you get that big idea. But then life and animals each individual animal send you all these challenges and this is when you understand that you need to deepen and develop your skills and your knowledge and it's a commitment if you really want to be a good trainer you really have to spend the time to study and develop those skills and then you know every time there will be this animal the one animal that will push your limits and where, that will challenge you and you'll think, hmm, I thought I was pretty good at this, but I still need to, to develop more skills and to understand better. So it's, it's a lifelong commitment. So all these workshops and it's, you're never, it's never over. You learn really fast not to get too cocky <laughs> because there's, as soon as you start to think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm figuring this stuff out the animals will throw something at you. We've been filming at the barn and, and the goats are back, which is great fun. We filmed, two days ago, we filmed the baby goats and we're looking at the beginning steps of, of leading and they were just brilliant. And I had set up where the three goats are going along three parallel planks and it's just really fun and really easy. And they were perfect for the filming. And then overnight, they had a discussion in their pen and two of the goats have decided to pick on the third goat. Mm. And so all of that lovely behavior has broken down. And I now have to figure out what do I do to train around this social interaction that is going on with these baby goats. And it's, and it's something, things like that are always popping up. You think, oh, 
I've got this beautiful behavior there. It's going great. And then you come back the next day and it's time to go have a cup of tea and think about yeah. it. Yeah, And social interaction, that's very strong. Huh? Very, very strong. Yes. And, and, and we're training multiple animals in this case. So, yeah. so it really does have an impact. And I can't ask the one that's being picked on to come up and say, oh, you know, I, I, I know you know how to stand on that pedestal there. I know you know how to do that. It says, yeah, I do know how to do that. But the one in the middle is telling me it's not safe to go there. That's right. That if I go up on that pedestal, I'm going to be chased off. So I have to now deal with this new social interaction, which was absent before. And I have to figure out why that interact, why this has suddenly appeared. What, what do I need to do? perhaps to enrich their environment a bit more when I'm not around so that there isn't this feeling of competition, which brings me to a point I was wanted to make while you were talking about, you know, with this discovery that behavior is determined by its consequences. And prior to Skinner, we were all focused on the antecedents. Yeah. You say sit and the dog sits. So sit clearly is what makes the dog sit. Well, the dog responds to sit because when you asked it to sit, you gave it hot dogs. Or if it didn't sit in the old style of traditional training, horrible things happened to it. So it learned to sit to avoid the punishment. But in the world of positive reinforcement that we live in, the reason that sit works is because it's a predictor of hot dogs. And so we get very focused on consequences. And one of the skills that we need to learn as good trainers is also how to arrange the antecedents, how to set up the environment for success. And that's also a big part of the training. So it's one of those evolutionary processes where at first we get really excited by consequences. So we can click and feed and this is so great and I can solve everything by just giving my horse a carrot, yay, or my dog a hot dog, yay. And then we discover that, well, actually, there's more to it than that. We have to become really skilled at setting up the environment and being willing to change the environment. Absolutely. So this this current project that you have where you've got a documentary where operant conditioning is the central character, which is such an interesting way of phrasing it, what prompted you to begin this project? What's, what's the impetus behind this? I have this drive to get the message out to people. The message that there's a way to train animals and people in a very humane fashion that makes everybody feel great and it's very, very efficient and effective. I think sometimes people get caught up on that using operant conditioning technology is very slow because you have to start with these small pieces and takes a really long time and it's much faster just to zap the animal. And I don't find that to be true. The better you get at using the technology, the faster your training can be. Absolutely. You don't have to be super slow. That's, I think, what we mean by efficiency. It, it is kind of fast. Absolutely. I mean, you can't just be sloppy and expect to get good results, but when you do it well, it's fast. Absolutely. Yeah. It's absolutely true that when you're very skilled, it's actually fast. It can be actually faster. I don't know that it's the case every time, but certainly what we're seeing and, you know, Alex, we've been doing all these podcasts about loopy training is that when your loops are clean and you know you're skilled at using this technology, it can go really, really fast. And as a matter of fact, when I look at traditional training, because I'm, you know, in the, my horses right now are in a boarding uh, barn. And so I see a lot of traditional training around me. And I keep thinking, my God, this could go so fast (laughs) with clicker training. You know, it's taking so much time with this traditional training. And it's probably the same though, to be honest, a very skilled traditional trainer 
can evolve pretty quickly because I mean, operant conditioning, there are the four quadrants. And so operant conditioning is not synonym with positive reinforcement training. That's the quadrant we use to work with most of the time. That's what we strive for, the least intrusive. And I mean, that's probably another podcast. But just to say that when you understand what you're doing, it can go really, really quickly. And when it is slow to evolve, to me, it is a signal to the um, trainer that his plan is not quite uh, the right one. He's missing something, right? You're, he, if, if something isn't going smoothly, it's a sign that there is some underlying component that is missing. That's right. And what we want as, as effective and kind clicker trainers, what we want to do is is have that be our cue, our signal. Uh, the training is, I'm, I'm starting to feel as though I need to raise my voice, say to a student, or the, the training is feeling a little rough right now. That should be my cue to stop, to step back, to go have the proverbial cup of tea and think about what is the missing piece? What is the underlying component that is not yet strongly enough in place for this to be working smoothly. And when we really recognize that, the training just sails along because I think one of the the pieces in this in terms when we talk about efficiency, I think as a clicker trainer, as a splitter, and it was Bob Bailey who who from whom I got the the phrases you want to be a splitter not a lumper. That was his language and I'm forever grateful for that. But if you're a splitter, what we tend to do with with the training is we break the training down into lots and lots and lots of small steps and when you're looking at each small step you see the learning going so fast but if somebody came along and said oh you put so many steps in i think that's where sometimes the perception that it's slower comes from because we tend to be or at least certainly with the horsework we tend to be very thorough. A while back we shared the visit that that I had in July, the Anya Baron workshop, and it was so refreshing to hear her talk about the length of time over which she was building the behaviors of Spanish walk and this horse that was sort of midway through the process and somebody asked how long have you you've been working on it and she said oh, well it takes about a year and a half to get to this point and to hear that somebody of that training caliber is taking that length of time to build a behavior so that it is rock solid. Yeah. And and I think sometimes when we get in a hurry, yeah, we have the behavior, but how rock solid is it? Is it really a strong, unbreakable behavior? Yeah. Or if you stress it a little bit, will it fall apart? So, so Nancy, you've had some fun adventures that you were sharing with me in the process of filming. You interviewed Julie Vargas, who was B.F. Skinner's daughter, and where you interviewed her is part of the fun. So I think you should share that. Absolutely. And I, when Dominique, when you were talking about, no, it was you, both of you were talking about how we're, we're just not exposed to positive reinforcement as a rule in our lives. It's not modeled for us in schools or at home and so forth. So I I thought of Julie because she's B.F. Skinner's daughter and interestingly, she went into the same field as he did. She started out as a music major, but she's always loved children and she went into teaching children and applying operant conditioning or as it's really mostly known now, behavior analysis to teaching children. She used it with children she used it to teach the teachers who teach the children. It's not commonly taught to teachers in their colleges, but in some areas, teachers learn techniques to use behavior analysis with their students, particularly with autistic children. It's, it's a very big deal there, and it works very well with them. But anyway, so we interviewed her, and about two days before we were to arrive, as we were pinning down the the address where to go and everything, she just threw into a conversation, oh, I live in my dad's house. And I said, in, you live in B.F. Skinner's house? She said, yes, that's where I live. So I felt a tingle down my spine. I got super excited. And we arrived and just, 
I mean, okay, now I'm going to get all, all bleary-eyed and just say, to look at his house and to feel the feeling of walking in the front door that B.F. Skinner walked into every day on his way back from Harvard where he did his work, and to even, we didn't really go in the basement, but I did kind of glance down there one time when she opened the door, because that's where his office was. That's where he created his, his ideas and his little gadgets because he was an inventor and he was an artist and he did little experiments with himself like one of the ones that Julie one of the techniques that she follows herself is he would wake up in the morning walk down to the basement turn on the lamp and set a timer and begin to write and that was his routine habit forming process to increase the not just the volume but the the technique of his writing and then when the timer went off, he went off to do his other things. At one point, he had, he put a piece of cardboard over the clock because he found himself continually glancing at the clock to see <laughs> what the time was. So he covered the clock. Is that not manipulating the environment so that you can succeed? So you can do, you can use this technology on yourself. You can use it with people. You can use it with animals. Well, anyway, Julie does the same thing. I'll just interject because... There are a lot of writers who describe a similar process. And they'll and people will say, oh, you know, I have writer's block. I don't know what to write. And the answer is, it doesn't matter. You just get in the habit of every day putting a piece of paper or a typewriter or a computer keyboard in front of you, and you write. And over time, what will begin to happen is you will produce things of value. But if you're waiting for the muse to hit, somebody else is going to be publishing the the bestseller or whatever it is that that you're trying to achieve. So it's a great technique. Yeah. And is that not what we do with animals in many cases? We bring a green animal into an area and we're going to train this animal and we begin to observe the animal. Hopefully we've learned about whatever species it is and what behaviors are typical for that species. We begin to observe this individual and learn about what behaviors it typically does. And we make a little bit of a flexible plan at that point of what we're going to reinforce that may lead us to what we want. That's exactly what he was doing in his process of manipulating the environment so that he could write better and better. I think, too, that if there is no punishment for mistakes, then because writers block, what is it really? It's the fear of not writing something worthwhile. Yes. But if you just write and there's no, you know, there will be no punishment for wrong writing and you will select the best writing in all of the writing, then there is no writer's block. Absolutely. And it's, it's what we do with when we're teaching our animals. There's no mistakes. It's just that we select where we want to go. We reinforce, we selectively reinforce certain things, but the rest is not punished. It's just try something else, write some more, behave some more. Absolutely. And he and his writing did get better because I have behavior of organisms and though it is a, a valuable, legendary, groundbreaking book, it's very hard to read. And his later books are much I think better written. Sorry, Skinner, they just are. (laughs) But anyway, you know, the other things I learned about Skinner from being in his home with his daughter are he played the piano. She has his Steinway grand piano in the room. He was an artist. He sculpted a sculpture of his daughter Julie's head as a child, and it's displayed on that piano next to a bust of Skinner that someone else made. He he crafted an amazing ship in a in a glass box out of tiny pieces of I guess balsa wood or something and little pieces of fabric for the sails it's like a clipper ship or something I don't know anything about ships but the art of it is magnificent and he was well read he was soft-spoken he was caring he disliked punishment he was a very humane man and in fact the B.F. Skinner Foundation which was established to further his discoveries and his teachings, their motto is something like 
better behavior science for a more humane world. Wow. Now think of that statement. All the way from Skinner. He may have talked about all the quadrants, but where he wanted the focus, the light beam to go, was into positive reinforcement. Absolutely. When we were with Julie Vargas, did you talk at all about why is it that Skinner, I mean, in our world of, of, of applied animal training, Skinner is, is revered, he's, he's respected, his work is respected, he's referred to, he's referenced over and over again. And you step out of this lovely little safe cocoon and you hear all kinds of negative things about Skinner. So did you talk at all about that with her? A little bit. I think the really big thing with Skinner was he thought out of the box all the time. He must have, every morning when he woke up, he thought, what new and just really out there thing could we try that maybe I could invent or experiment with? And as you know, he invented the air crib, which was a, I hesitate to call it a device, it's, it's really a baby bed with a lot of bells and whistles, like temperature control. It was easy to clean. It was raised up so that the mom, or today the dad, but back then it was the mom that took care of the babies, could just reach forward to change the baby's diaper or take the baby out of the bed instead of having to lean over the giant crib and reach down and pull the baby up and hurt your back. There were a lot of just amazing ergonomic functions to this air crib. And when you read the articles that were in Life Magazine or Look Magazine or wherever they were, there was a lot of criticism about, well, Skinner, Skinner put his baby in a box. He raised his child in a box. He didn't, it was a bed. He put her in there to go to sleep, and then they took her out of the bed to play and to eat and do all the other things that babies do. Well, a number of other psychologists shortly after that time embraced the air crib. The Breelands had one, I believe. John Gray was famous for them. But there was a lot of criticism. What do, what do you think you're saying? You know, our mothers not taking good enough care of their children. Shouldn't they hold the babes in arms and, you know, they should have fluffy pillows? Well, if you want to, sure. But, you know, there's a lot of benefits to this. But they didn't really look at it that way. They, right. they felt that he was telling them they were wrong, I think. And that upsets people. And they say, oh, you must be a bad person and inhumane and we're going to say bad things about you because you're, you said we're wrong. And at the end of the day, what we're discovering is that the work that we do with our animals stands very much on the shoulders of a very great giant, and that great giant was B.F. Skinner. So there we have a, a, lot, a lot to be grateful for the work that he did. Yeah. So you've mentioned the Breelands a number of times, and you have another project, which is also quite exciting. So uh, I think you need to share a little bit about that as well. Yes. So... Marion and Keller Breland wrote a book, and it was published in 1966, I believe one year after Keller had passed away. Of course, they had worked on it together, and you know, Marion just finished getting it to the publisher. It's called Animal Behavior by Marion and Keller Breland, and since then, for a number of years, it's been out of print. You would go online to a used bookseller, and there weren't very many of them out there, so it's very, very expensive. And I bought one of those copies, because I had to read it, and when I did read it, I was floored by what was in there. All of the things that we talk about today in our animal training are covered in the Breland's work. At that point, I believe they had trained 40 species or something. By the time Keller had passed away, Bob came on onto the team. And by the way, in 1976, Bob ended up marrying, marrying Marion. So it's a very interesting relationship process but they were together for a very long time after that the information in there for instance Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz who Alex and I both revere and love and find to be a real groundbreaking kind of a guy himself speaks about the poisoned cue well the Breelands didn't call it the poisoned cue but it's in the book Skinner even talked about the arrangement of the environment that could cause what we now call a poisoned cue. And I was floored by that. 
Right. There it is. It's right there. The things they discovered, which if you're training that many animals commercially, effectively to be making money, to have the, the highest number of them out in performance, you're going to learn a lot of stuff. And this book, Animal Behavior, covers that. Well, anyway, so Bob and Marion had wanted to rewrite it at one point, and then they had gotten to, well, maybe we'll just republish it, but they never had. Marion died in 2001. Suddenly, last summer, Bob said, I really want to do this, and I said, I think we can do it. We assembled a team. We are republishing the book. It's actually the final proof is at the publisher right now. We expect to go to print within the next week, I hope. Wow. It has a whole section of historic photos and a new foreword and introduction that Bob wrote that sets the scene for the book in this current time. But the science and the information is already ahead of its time it, from, from when it was written. And it is completely within context of what we're doing now. So then the historic photographs help you understand what they were really doing. And I'm really excited about it. And it's in their words. Marion and Keller Breland are speaking to you from the past. Well, the laws of nature have always been there, I guess. And so, because in a way, when we say he discovered, he actually described something that was like the law of gravity. It was there to be this. It, it, it's... It's been there, so it makes sense to me that all this content would have already been in that book because it's a law of nature. And so if someone has really put in the time to observe it, they're observing then in the 60s the same thing we are observing today. There may be new ways of talking about it and, and some nuances that are being made, but we're looking at something that is, uh, Susan Friedman calls it, calls it our biological endowment that we behave to have an effect on our environment and it's it's true for all living organism and it's always been like this it's just that we didn't know about it because nobody had described it before that's right and to have that direct link so to have the breland's book reprinted so that we have real access to it i think is super exciting yeah because they they have that direct link with bf skinner and they have a level of expertise with so many different species that most of us will never even begin to approach. And they have, they bridge that world between the academically trained and the applied sciences, the applied training. So it's going to be a treasure. So when, when Nancy, when you get it published and it's available, you will of course be letting me know and then we can I'll make that announcement for people as well because I think that's going to be a real asset to have for us in the animal training world. We do have a Facebook page for the book that you can put on your website okay. and the latest information is available on there. It's great that that this kind of work does not disappear. That's right, that's right. So you went from Julie Vargas to my barn, which is quite an honor to have that, that link. So what have you been observing, discovering? What has struck you as you've been coming into this world of horses over the last few days? Well, they're not just horses, you know. They're amazingly trained and mannerly and just pleasant horses to be around. And the environment is of the people who understand what they're doing with the horses is so pleasant to be in. So thank you so much for having us. It's just been a real pleasure. I am struck by, throughout making the documentary, and, and yes, republishing the book has, has been a real touchstone and a partner to that project. And what I'm struck by is that every single person that we interview and every single species that they work with reminds us that A, there's no real magic to what we're doing. Like Dominique said, it's always been there. This is how animals evolved. The ones who survived were able to successfully interact with their environment to make it to the next day and reproduce. That's what we're talking about. It's biology. And when we look at Skinner and, and Pavlov and those who came before us and what they were doing, and break that down to the fundamentals of behavior that we have 
to use in shaping the behavior of our animals, the commonality is just incredible. Whether you're at Alex's barn and looking at these wonderfully pleasant horses that almost literally stand and chat with you in a group, or put them out in the arena and watch people handle these huge animals with no equipment, It's not how much equipment can we put on them so that we can control them and hold on to all the ropes and things and make them do what we want. It's just a joy. The horses are, as Alex says, at liberty. I tend to say off lead because I'm a dog trainer. They're at liberty in the arena and they're they're healing with them. There's another dog term. They're leading with the people with no lead. They're trotting when asked. They're stopping when asked. And when the public sees this documentary, what I want them to get is how amazing animals are, whether it's their little chihuahua that sits on the couch, their horse that hangs out at the boarding barn, their parakeet in a cage, any animal. Look what they can do. These animals are capable of so much more than we allow or support them becoming. So many pets are just at home sleeping on the couch. Look at the relationship you can have with them. And those who want it can have it because they can learn this too. This is not magic and it's not done by gurus or these are special people that have a talent they were born with and they're the only ones that can do it. I learned it. Alex learned it. You can learn it. It's mind-boggling where we could be with animals and we're not. And that's that's the message. You know, if you just want your dog to sleep on the couch, that's fine. I, you know, if your dog's happy you're happy, that's fine. But if you didn't know, and you can grab this message and think, wow, what could I be doing? That's what we're looking for. Yeah, and a lot of people don't know. They are looking for something else, but they don't know of all this this science and all this work that has been done for decades. It's a very necessary message to um, to shout out because the animals need it the welfare of the animals and it's true it's a joy for everyone uh, for the owner too it's a joy to work this way with our animals it is and i forgot to say i got i get off on tangents because there's a lot to talk about but one of the things i'm so thankful that alex let me do was go into the arena with her exceedingly beautiful to look at horse, Robin, and then learn how exceedingly wonderfully pleasant it is to hang out with him and have a conversation with him and have him sometimes say, you know, no, I don't really want to talk to you right now because you're kind of weird and you don't act right. And then to have him come back to my side and say, well, okay, I can, I can help you understand how we need to do this. It was a joy, an absolute joy, to have the opportunity to just just interact with him and maybe show him that this slow, dumb person who doesn't really know anything about horses can go in there and know operant conditioning technology, but I sure don't know it with horses. And, And honestly, Alex and her students do it a little bit differently with the horses than I do with dogs. There's a little bit of mechanical skill to be dealt with there and and behavior change on my part. And I think I did it a little bit. Yeah, Um, you did. You did great. (laughs) But it's out of my comfort zone. And what a treat. And Robin was so gracious to have me. And it was a joy. So that was a whole new experience for me. You know, I've been around horses, but not horses like that. I've only been around yard horses, if you will. So that's another thing we did this week. That was fun. He enjoyed that, too. And you got to play Panda Catch. Yes. Lovely little panda and her wonderful owner, Anne. That was a real treat. Panda Catch, to have a a tiny, adorable horse that you just want to hug, but you can't because she doesn't really want you to. I mean, I could, but I wouldn't do that to her because she didn't really want me to. But she will run to you at top speed gallop towards you, swoop around behind you, and come to a dead and screeching stop in what we in dogs call heel position, and just stand there. And love, and is loving it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. her favorite game. Yeah. And then you, yeah. you, you click, you treat, and zoom, she's off to the next person. Yeah. I, I can't wait for, you know, I've had many, many clients. We do that with dogs, too. And not everybody's successful at it because they don't want to be consistent. They don't want to change their behavior. 
They don't want to develop the routine, but just can't wait to say, well, this horse can do it. <laughs> well, there has been, too, a lot of details put into this so that it's um, very smooth. Again, it's always splitting, 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 and making sure that each little step is, um, is smooth. Because you could, you know, just the way she will turn around you and reposition herself, that's something that has been taught. But if you asked Panda, she would say that she invented the entire game. That she what? That she invented the entire game. Oh, yes, okay. It's her game. That's right. <laughs> yes, it's built out of components, but she invented the game and she plays it with great joy. And she always enjoys sharing with visitors when, when they come. That, uh, and that was a treat for Panda as well, to be able to come to the barn and, and be turned loose in the arena so she could go zooming back and <laughs> forth. And even though it was 90 degrees and, and we were all just dripping with sweat, she was still going to play her game. So that was fun. And the benefits for her training, if we break that back down and look at it in a scientific manner, what are we maintaining there? Perfect heel position for Anne, her blind owner, to depend on with her horse as they move around and and Panda guides her. The self-control that Panda exhibits as she charges literally at full speed at you, slows down, makes that turn around you, and solves the problem of getting from the full charge into the dead stop in heel position based on the training that she's had by splitting that down into its smallest pieces does that not describe operant conditioning technology to a t what a magical thing it's a game it teaches her it helps us with our handling it helps maintain her skills oh my goodness it does so many good things for her for us and at the core of it is a lot of laughter. And I think when we talk about training and we talk about science, sometimes people can get very serious. And, and what we need to remember always is that woven together with good science is relationship. And woven into relationship should always be a lot of laughter. And that's what we see with Panda Catch. And, and that's absolutely what we saw when you were playing with Robin and, and letting you get introduced to this is what it feels like to walk next to an animal that is as big and has as much presence as he does, but it can still feel comfortable. We were using a simple fetching game because he likes to go retrieve targets. And that you can take things such as these very simple behaviors like going to fetch a cone and make that the transition into, and this is a big horse, and you're not familiar with that whole feel of walking next to an animal of this size, here's how we introduce it. So there again was this whole process of, let's break things down into small steps and make sure that not only is Robin successful, but that you're successful and that you want to do it again, that the, that, that would be the, the sign of, was, was this an okay lesson? Would you be willing to do it again? Or were you quaking in your boots going, oh, shoot, glad that's over, and, and who knows? But yes. it's, it's, been a, it's been a really fun week. We've got a little bit more filming left to do today. So I think what we're going to do at this juncture is say goodbye to you, Dominique, because we have to head off and finish our filming. Can you tell us, though, what's, so what's the plan for this documentary? Where is it going to be seen and when? So uh, do you have anything you can tell us now or is it top secret? Oh, it's definitely not top secret, except, well, I mean, I guess it is top secret in some ways to us still, but <laughs> we, we know the message. The message is... Operant conditioning technology is something you want to know about. That's our message to our audience. Here's how it came about. Here are the humans who have learned about this technology and are using it in amazing ways. They're the supporting characters in the film. And we talked to them some about what the future is expected to bring, which is, I'll just leave that part alone. We have interviews. We have tons of video with animals moving around and doing things that you, well, we have a lot of things that were trained 
Horses are, are traditionally trained in a lot of settings. They, Of course, it's all operant conditioning, but it's not positive reinforcement. And there's some rough treatment there. Also, dogs are, are trained in those less humane ways that are, we find, less efficient. Certainly, they're effective. You can train an animal that way. We know that. But the things that can be trained, like military dogs, police dogs, we have a trainer from the Netherlands who is interviewed and has some film in here that these dogs are attack dogs and working dogs, operative dogs. They take pictures with cameras on their heads and so forth. And they are trained in the same way that we're talking about. There's no, in a world where most people are training with shock collars. So he has some of the same issues that Alex does in a world where people use a little bit rougher or a lot rougher treatment for their animals. I'm really excited about it. So where can you see it? We intend for it to be in theaters. We intend to enter film festivals with it. I hope that you'll see us at a film festival in 2019. Early 2019 is the goal. In the States or everywhere on the planet? Because where some of our list, where our listeners are from everywhere. We have people from Australia, from Europe, from Canada, uh, from the U.S., of course. Is this going to be seen outside of the U.S. or mostly in America? We want to send it everywhere. We have no limitations at this point. We are thinking very, very, very big. Okay. That's the vision, and that's what we're working toward. So we'll keep you posted on the Facebook page, and we're, we'll have a website soon, too. The name of our company is Spybird Productions, and... The movie is about operant conditioning technology and why it's awesome. So perhaps once it gets out, we can let people know again. So we'll, we'll be publishing this podcast. And then when the movie is available, we can remind people. Maybe we'll ha have you come back and talk to us again. And you can share some of the, the other places you, you've been in the meantime and who you filmed and what you saw. And then we, all the people listening can help push this thing around the planet because it's the same message that we all want to get out there that yep yep it's this is this is what it's all about and it takes a community to bring positive reinforcement into the broader community and it's important so we have filming to do yeah um, so much success with this documentary nancy it's a great endeavor thank you so much it's been a pleasure to meet you dominique and i hope to actually meet you in live and in person sometime. We want the documentary to be entertaining as well as science-based. That's our challenge. Yep. We're looking forward to it. Goodbye. Bye, have a good uh, remaining yeah. of filming. This was a long podcast, so I'll keep this part short. Dominique and I very much valued the process of shaping through successive approximations. This applies to websites as well as to animal training. When we began 23 podcasts ago, all we needed was a simple homepage. Then we added webinars and the homepage had to expand to include those events. And now that we've done the webinars and people are hearing how good they are, we're getting requests for the recordings. People want to know if they can still sign up to listen to the webinars. The answer is yes. Dominique took on the Herculean task of adding a store to the website. It's all set, so you can now buy past webinars through the website. Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz started us out with two great webinars. The first one began with a discussion of escape and avoidance. In his second webinar, he introduced us to what he referred to rather flippantly as a new quadrant. He treated us to a brilliant discussion of stimulus control. It was truly outstanding. The most recent webinar was with Ken Ramirez. The primary focus was on husbandry. How do you prepare your animals, whether you're working with a horse, a dog, a goat, or even a whale? Whatever you're working with, how do you prepare them for routine health care and whatever medical emergencies you may have to deal with in the future. That's a particularly challenging training question. How do you prepare your animal when you don't know what you're preparing him for? You don't know what injuries or health crises you're going to have to deal with in the future. So 
how do you prepare your animal for the unknown? This was a superb discussion. It's a real must-have in your training library. You can order all three by going to our new store in equiosity.com. And while you're visiting the site, you can also sign up for our next webinar. We're so excited. On September 29th, Dr. Susan Friedman will be joining us. Susan is our myth buster. When you listen to the webinar, you'll find out what that means and why I so value her input. I met Susan first at the Clicker Expos, and I've really enjoyed so much the time that I get to spend with her. We, we often take time during lunch breaks and certainly late into the evenings when the expo has wound down, we'll get together with a couple other of the faculty members and our discussions go on late into the night. And it's Susan who's constantly challenging our thinking. Is that really the best way to talk about this? What is the science behind the concepts that you're talking about? She adds so much to the clarity of our training. Always Susan is a great go-to when we want to understand the science behind clicker training. On November 11th, Jesus will be back for another head spinner of a webinar. You can sign up for both at equiosity.com. We have an early bird price for everyone who signs up before the event date. I think that's all the announcements that we have right now. So we'll have another podcast for you next week. And in the meantime, have fun with your training.